So um, let's get straight into exploring you know, why this question, uh, what kind of question it is, and the nature of the problem that I allude to. So this is kind of by way of introduction, but it's a bit more extended than a, a paragraph-long introduction. It's firmly embedded in Catholic tradition that the ordained have a distinct role and place in the church. Whilst they are members of the faithful through baptism and confirmation, they are also distinguished from any other members who are not ordained. Paragraph 10 of the Second Vatican Council Dogmatic Constitution on the Church, Lumen Gentium, famously, if, <clears throat> if somewhat contentiously, articulated this distinctiveness relative to the priesthood in the following terms. Uh, I refer you to the handout. It gives you something else prettier than me to look at. Also, other than this one quote, I probably won't be reading out most of the quotes. I'll just say there's a quote there as well. <clears throat> Though they differ from one another in essence and not only in degree, essentia non graduatantum, the common priesthood of the faithful and the ministerial or hierarchical priesthood are nonetheless interrelated. Each of them in its own special way is a participation in the one priesthood of Christ. Now, in asking what difference does ordination make let me be clear from the outset about two things. First, I intend this as a positive rather than as a negative question, by which I mean that I'm more concerned to take this tradition of ordained um, distinctiveness seriously <coughs> and to ask how we might understand it and live it well. That's the intention. And by which, in turn, I mean um, how we might understand it and live it in a way that's not locked into a zero-sum, binary, competitive dynamic with the vocation and ministry of the baptized faithful. So, um, despite the somewhat provocative turn of the title, this is no exercise in theological or ecclesiological reductionism, or at least I don't think it is. Um, my question is not intended to imply that I think ordination makes no difference could be read that way. That's not my um, intention behind it. On the contrary, I'm asking here what it might mean for us to give this ordained distinctiveness its proper place in the church, and how it is that what is a real gift and promise about it might be seen more clearly and be lived more fruitfully than is sometimes the case. Second, however, and as all this already implies, I take equally seriously that this tradition of ordained distinctiveness has been and continues to be profoundly problematic within Catholic tradition. At one level, so I'm going to explore how is it problematic um, for a little bit. At one level, this problematic has been manifest in an inability since the Second Vatican Council to arrive at an integrated and integrating theology of ministry, one that is capable of forming a whole church consensus in thought and practice around it. Let me tease that out a bit. Well, sure, in various ways, the Council placed strong emphasis on baptism and confirmation as initiating each and every member of the faithful into the prophetic, priestly, and kingly offices of Christ. 
and um, reacting against the strict clerical lay divide that marked pre-conciliar theology and practice, the council also placed renewed emphasis at various points on service rather than power as the primary category within which to understand ordained ministry. And in turn, fired by such aspects of conciliar teaching and by the remarkable flowering of lay ecclesial ministries since the council, We've had theologies which, on the one hand, have focused on doing justice to the calling of the whole people of God, but which, on the other hand, have been perceived as diminishing the proper distinctiveness of ordained ministry by apparently reducing it to the specific function of pastoral leadership in the church. And those who have ears to hear will hear Junge Kung and Schulebecks in the background there. In turn, Reacting against this perceived ecclesiological reductionism and drawing on other aspects of conciliar teaching, <clears throat> there have been strong formal restatements as to there being an essential ontological distinction between lay and ordained in such a fashion as can seem to perpetuate a strict two-tier divide between clergy and rel laity relative to dignity, status and power. <clears throat> What I want to suggest is that this dysfunction in post-conciliar theology of ministry, this disintegrity within post-conciliar theology of ministry, has prevented the members of the Catholic Church, and I think at every level, from being able to think and to act in a whole church integrated manner, and has given rise to countless tensions, contradictions, incoherences, and underperformances in pastoral practice. The point I'm making here is that the various theologies of ministry which were placed alongside each other but left somewhat unresolved in the council documents have remained unresolved and in uneasy tension with each other in the theology, conversations, instincts and habits of the post-conciliar church. And this can become manifest in surprising, amusing and contradictory ways. For example, listening to my priest friends. In clerical experience, we have the oft commented upon phenomenon of an articulate laity, aware of their dignity and intolerant of any clerical superiority, but who nevertheless frequently remain largely disengaged from taking any active responsibility for parochial life. I, I count myself amongst that number largely at the moment, I have to say, but I've done a bit at the time. Um, equally, lay experience is no stranger to the phenomenon of working with clergy whose self-understanding is explicitly shaped by a servant-leader model of ministry, a real Vatican II priest, but who can nevertheless very easily turn to acting and speaking out of an, out of an ingrained cultural default to power and authority when they feel themselves threatened. So, there is a disabling lack of integrity in Catholic habits of mind and action in relation to the distinctiveness of ordained ministry. But this by no means exhausts the problematic nature of ordained distinctiveness within Catholic tradition. In fact, it only begins to scrape the surface of the problem. Even more concerning than coming to recognise that we are hobbling along with somewhat conflicting theologies of ordained ministry in unresolved tension with each other, is the evidence that has come to light in recent decades that some theologies of ministry have actually been implicated 
in destructive and pathological patterns of behaviour. I refer, of course, to the fact that as the global extent and cultural systemic nature of the clerical sexual abuse crisis has been brought to light, so we have become painfully aware of the very serious shortcomings in Catholic systems and structures of authority, oversight and accountability, and of the roles that unreconstituted understandings of clerical distinctiveness seem to have performed in this regard as legitimating mechanisms. The empirical evidence of interview data with victim survivors, priest perpetrators and Episcopal overseers consistently suggests that a key factor for each in ensuring that occurrences of clerical sexual abuse were at once unimaginable, undetected and unreported was the excessively high status and relatively unfettered power traditionally attributed to priests in the Catholic community. <coughs> in turn, stepping back for a moment, I'll stop griping in a minute, but I mean, let me, kind of, I'm on a roll, let me carry on for a minute. In turn, stepping back for a moment from this sharp challenge concerning the ways in which our thinking and our theology can be implicated in the sin of the church and returning to the challenges of contemporary pastoral practice, it's notable that dioceses throughout the global north are pursuing various restructuring initiatives analogous to the ambitious Forward Together in Hope process currently underway in our own diocese of Hexham and Newcastle. Now, one of the presuppositions in all such initiatives is that the supply of ordained ministers is decreasing, as also the numbers of practicing faithful and associated levels of financial resource. And that as a consequence, the number of worshipping communities needs to be rationalised downwards, regardless of the fact that many of these worshipping communities are still numerically and financially viable. In this context, it strikes me as quite remarkable the level of resistance and dismissiveness that can be still to exploring the possible value of the kinds of alternative models of ordained ministry which are now routine in other traditions, for example, mature married men and part-time non-stipendiary ordained ministers. And that's without even going into the possibility of ordaining women. Now, likely lying behind and beneath these resistances are again, I would suggest, the continuing effects of unreconstituted understandings of clerical distinctiveness, which must make of the ordained, or at least which feel they must make of the ordained, quite distinct kinds of people rather than people who occupy a distinct role and space in the body of the church. So, there we have the problem that is in the title of the lecture. On the one hand, the thinking of a real ordained distinctiveness is firmly embedded in Catholic tradition, which, and as I would see it, um, has sound theological reasoning in play behind it, which needs to be observed in Catholic understanding. I'll say more about that in a little while. But on the other hand, the ways in which we tend to think this important difference appear confused at best and profoundly damaging at worst. The fundamental need, then, is for an integrated, non-competitive, mutually supportive theology and practice of ministry around which both lay and ordained can gather as a whole body, a whole church, 
each recognizing both themselves and the other in the understanding they're articulated. Now, in service of this purpose, um, the, uh, the approach of the paper, fourfold approach of the paper, is starting to put this on these sheets. It's firstly um, to analyze the limits, as I view them, of some of the most constructive attempts which have been made in post-conciliar Catholic theology to think the ordained lay distinction, to think the ordained lay distinction in relation. Um, secondly, to lay the ground for a fresh proposal, this is the constructive part, a fresh proposal concerning the ordained being best thought of as the authenticated public representatives of the ministry of Christ in the body of the church as a whole. Thirdly, to develop and test this proposal in one direction against British Methodist understanding of ordained ministry as representative ministry. And fourthly, to develop and test this in another direction against the Catholic categories of the ordained as sacramental persons and of the ordained as being at one and the same time and in one and the same manner, I would suggest, representatio Christi and representatio ecclesia. Now, before I jump into these four points, which is the heart of the paper, let me just say a few words about what kind of theological exercise I understand this to be. In some ways, this dovetails with some of what Karen was saying. And for those postgraduates and colleagues who like to have a sense of such things, such methodological matters, well, this is a kind of little methodological interlude and may um, indeed, sadly, be the most in interesting part of the paper for you. Uh, by contrast, uh, for those of you who do not care for such things, this could be excruciating tedium. Uh, if so, and if you're not inclined to endure this patiently as an early Lenten penance, then do feel free with impunity to set the snooze control on your phone for a few minutes. I estimate it will take me five minutes. Okay? So, the nature of the exercise. For all its concern with practical issues and difficulties in the life of the church, and the need for these to be properly diagnosed and constructively engaged, I view this as an exercise in engaged systematic theology. As an exercise, rather than as an exercise in practical theology. More specifically, I view it as an exercise in systematic theology understood as the critical constructive analysis of the understanding and practice of faith and the questions and problems which arise there, with a view to seeking to address such questions and difficulties, and so seek to enhance the quality of the understanding and practice of faith. That's a kind of modern spin on Anselm, but we won't go into that. Uh, Anselm's a lot more um, gracious, how we say that. So this is, uh, if you like, systematic theology in interrogative mode. It's about the systematic pursuit of particular questions and issues, not the construction of a great, enduring conceptual system. Now, in other writings, I've variously um, pursued this systematic concern, this systematic pursuit of the particular, through a threefold testing for coherence. First, at the level of the internal coherence of the tradition itself, across 2,000 years of tradition, across all the various loci of Christian understanding, and across its very contemporary expressions and diverse cultural contexts. Of course, no one ever does that, all of that, at any one time, but they're the kind of points of reference that we should be engaging with for looking for that kind of internal coherence. 
Second, at the level of the external or extrinsic coherence of the tradition with what we otherwise take seriously about the world. And thirdly, and somewhat more unusually for systematic theology, at the level of what I call the pragmatic coherence of the articulated understanding of the tradition with the actual practice which such understanding supports. And the latter regard, the point is, and lies behind this, is that regardless of whether some aspect of Christian understanding can be seen to hang together relatively well in itself within the received terms of the tradition, what I argue is that if we should find that that aspect of understanding is routinely complicit in both creating the conditions for and legitimating the possibility of patterns of behaviour and practical outcomes which are inimical, which are inimical to the tradition, then we can properly find this mode of understanding wanting on pragmatic grounds which are internal to the tradition itself. This, to loop back, is what I'm suggesting concerning certain ways of understanding ordained distinctiveness relative to some of the key habits of mind which have been found to be implicated in the clerical sexual abuse crisis. In turn, having found an aspect of Catholic understanding and practice potentially wanting in this way, or damaged, the next challenge is as to how we might seek to effect appropriate repair in a manner that has integrity within the Catholic web of belief and practice. And it's here, I believe, that we can fruitfully make the turn to ecumenical engagement and receptive ecumenical learning, which is heralded in the subtitle for the paper, Resolving the Catholic Problem Through Receptive Learning from Methodist Tradition. Pragmatic concerns are, again, woven into this ecumenical turn. For, ecumenic, for receptive ecumenism wants to take seriously two somewhat distinct but also interestingly interrelated realisations. First is the realisation that we're going to be living with some substantive theological, procedural and structural differences between the churches for a longer time than some earlier generations of ecumenists had hoped and believed to be the case. Commonality and full communion in understanding practice and structure are simply not within our tangible grasp. And receptive ecumenism believes that this calls for a fresh approach within formal, theologically driven ecumenical engagement, one which ceases to focus directly on attempting to overcome difference and focuses instead on what it means to live such difference creatively. <laughs> Second is the realisation that during this period in which ecumenists have begun to move from a position of ecumenical idealism and optimism to one of ecumenical realism, each of the traditions has also come to have a far less idealised and far more realistic perception of their own limits, difficulties and distortions. This has happened as we have been confronted by the reality of such wounds, not because we've become more virtuous in its own right, We've been confronted by these difficulties, and so we've been disabused of some of the illusions that we might have had about ourselves. It's similar for organisations, I guess, as it is for individuals. Furthermore, 
Given that these are difficulties and wounds within our current thought and practice, within our current logic, as it were, it's not easy to see how they can be resolved simply by staying within the logic of such existing thought and practice. And it's this realisation that can in turn lead to a sense of our being in need of fresh resource and fresh perspective from without. Now, putting these two ecumenical realisations together, receptive ecumenism believes that the way in which we can live medium to long-term difference in a transformative fashion, that is, in a way that both takes such difference seriously and effects change, is by asking how the other's difference might help us to address the specific difficulties and limits within our own tradition by bringing fresh perspective, fresh understanding, and fresh approach to bear on these difficulties. So this is an approach which prioritises ecumenical learning over either ecumenical teaching or ecumenical agreement. However, for all its relation to the lived practice and ecclesial lives of the traditions, what makes this a formal, theologically driven mode of ecumenical engagement is that receptive ecumenism does not think that a purely instrumentalist, pick-and-mix adoption of various interesting-looking practices is adequate. Rather, receptive ecumenism believes that the respective operative webs of understanding, habit, procedure and structure within each of the traditions need to be brought into conversation with each other and that a theologically rigorous process of testing needs to be pursued as to how, with dynamic integrity and appropriate transposition, the host tradition might coherently receive from the donor tradition on the basis of a combination of creative expansion, retrieval and reconfiguring. Now, um, snooze control should just be about coming activated. Uh, with that methodological excursus in mind, let me, let me remind you that in the case of this paper, the difficulty I've identified within the Catholic web of understanding and practice relates to the challenge we find in relation to thinking well of the necessary distinctiveness of the ordained. And the constructive proposal that I want to make in test is that this can be attended to fruitfully by bringing this aspect of Catholic tradition into conversation with British Methodist understanding of representative ministry. Now, in order to gain clearer perspective on this, what I'm first going to do is to attend more closely to the limits, or what I'm next going to do is attend more closely to the limits of some attempted solutions within post-conciliar Catholic tradition. And this, in turn, requires us to grasp what is at issue in the Catholic rejection of functionalist accounts of ordained ministry. A rejection, uh, we need to note, which is shared by many who are also committed to countering the pathologies of clericalism, and which as such cannot simply be dismissed as a reactionary habit of mind. So, the search for an integrated account of ministry within Catholicism, the inadequacy of functionalism, and the promise and limits of relational ontology. Next section. Now, leaving aside, as I've said, those operating out of a reactionary sacerdotalism. Of course they exist, but that's not my concern at the moment. What I want to say is that at the constructive core of Catholic dissatisfaction with purely functionalist accounts of ordained ministry is a profound conviction, as I see it, 
concerning the authentic character of ordained ministry as a grace-filled calling and witness, rather than as a self-asserted activism. Or of ordained ministry as a fundamental orientation and enfolding of life, rather than it being an occasional role which can be picked up, put on, and then put down as a matter of choice, much as one might a set of vestments. Vestments might not be 24-7, ordination is, is the point there. The Catholic instinct here is that the ordained are not simply functionaries of the sacraments, but are themselves called out to be sacramental. And I want to adhere to that and say I think that is an absolutely sound principle. If then the Catholic community is indeed to make progress towards an integrated and integrating theology and practice of order and ministry, the requisite critical constructive modes of systematic theological analysis need to find appropriate non-damaging means of preserving this core instinct, this core conviction concerning the real distinctiveness of the ordained. Um, uh, a distinctiveness which is regarded as having burning on their being and person before God in the church. Or more specifically, it's necessary to find means of preserving this core conviction whilst in the process disentangling and protecting it from some of the very unhelpful ways in which it's been expressed, most notably by maintaining, uh, one of the difficult ways most notably is by maintaining a strict two-tier dispensation of charism, grace, dignity, and sacrality. Now, one of the most promising developments in this regard in near-recent Catholic theology has been the advocacy of a shift from a substance-based ontology to a relational ontology in the work of Richard Gillardé, Susan Wood, and Edward Hannenberg, and others. And here the concern is not to replace ontological categories with purely functionalist categories, as tended to be the case with the earlier work of Kung and Skulovics, but rather to recognise that ontology, or being, is not simply a matter of distinct, essentially defined entities and substances, but of the conditions of existence of beings, and the quality and character of relations between them. At the heart of this, uh, uh, of this approach is the principle that as people in communion, what we are and become is in and through the relationships that constitute us. Now, taking this broader late 20th century insight seriously about um, the ontological implications of our relationships uh, enables the advocates of relational ontology to maintain that the ontological distinctiveness of the ordained resides not in their undergoing a mysterious inner essential transformation in the rite of ordination from being one kind of Christian person to becoming another kind of Christian person, a more elevated kind of Christian person, but rather consists in their formally entering into a different set of relationships and configurement with the Christian community entailed by their responsibility for pastoral ministry. So in this way of thinking, it's not that ordination effects an inner change which transforms the ordained into a higher person with special inner powers suitable for pastoral leadership, but that ordination formally initiates the ordained 
into a fundamentally different set of relationships with and responsibilities for the community in such a fashion as has sometime uh, in such a fashion as has significant implications for their vocation and existence their being within the community before and towards God now i think this is all very significant because it represents a theology of order and ministry which seeks which genuinely seeks to take the proper distinctiveness of the ordained seriously and which seeks to do so by retaining ontological categories and indeed which seeks to do so in such a fashion as roots the ordained in relationship with the body of the church rather than by elevating them over it there's some great kind of instincts at work here i think and moves being made as such it is a reconfigured theology of order and ministry which seeks to provide an appropriate theological basis for structures and practices of accountability downwards and laterally as well as upwards uh, our current theology of ministry tends to only provide justification for accountability upwards question still remains however and this is where i want to drill down and say ultimately i think this has its limits this approach a question still remains, however, as to the final adequacy of this proposed development, at least as it has thus far been articulated. Let's look at it a bit more closely. The focus is on substantial, intentionally lifelong pastoral ministry as the distinguishing feature between ordained and lay. It's uh, it seeks to draw out the ontological implications and density of this fundamental orientation on account of the web of changed relations and responsibilities that coming into um, lifelong pastoral ministry entails, the ordination to pastoral ministry entails. But the question I want to ask about this, and this is where I think its limits lie, is well, what does this imply? It's all well and good, but what does this imply? about the specifically ordained dignity of those who whilst they may indeed have been actively involved in pastoral roles find themselves for one reason or another no longer in active pastoral ministry and potentially without any realistic prospect of return to it on account of circumstances such as illness retirement or deployment in a role with no prerequisite for ordination. What are we saying about the ordained dignity of people in this situation? And to make it as sharp as possible, what are we saying about the ordained dignity of Pope John Paul II when all he could do in front of the world is show us how to die well? Okay? Uh, no pastoral leadership there at that point, uh, in any obvious sense. To tease this out further, according to the proponents of relational ontology, the ontological distinctiveness of the ordained consists in the existential implications of the fundamentally changed relationship with the community that is consequent upon entering into formal substantive pastoral ministry through ordination. So does this consequently imply that the once ordained cease to have the effective dignity of the ordained as and when they cease to be involved in such active pastoral ministry? for seasons such as the aforementioned. Well, if so, this would conflict both with the traditional Catholic principle 
concerning the permanence and distinctive dignity associated with the ordained, which I have uh, argued for, and with the typical self-understanding of the ordained, which is rooted in a sense, uh, in my experience and in conversation with priest friends, which is rooted in a sense of defining response to a lifelong call and not simply a particular form of work for a period within the church. In sum, relational ontology takes us, I think, so far, but we ultimately need something which pertains to the total life of the ordained and not simply a specific function which they serve. And it's with this concern in mind that we turn now to the next section of the paper on representative ministry within British Methodism as a potential resource for reimagining the sacramentality of ordained ministry. So, a constructive way ahead, I'm wanting to argue here, might lie in some potential receptive ecumenical Catholic learning in, tra in transposition. It's always in transposition, it's not just straight copying. In transposition from British Methodist tradition in relation to the notion of representative ministry. The argument is that a Catholic appropriation of representative ministry might offer a way to focus the distinctiveness of the ordained, not in terms of the adoption of particular pastoral leadership roles, um, which for one reason or another will always come to their natural end of, act, of active service, but rather in their being called to represent throughout the entirety of their lives and in all possible circumstances the configuring of Christian discipleship to the spirit-moved presence and ministry of Christ in the church, even in the face of personal diminishment and death. Now, it's important um, to recognise um, here, and this is my kind of caveat, uh, that British Methodism has itself undergone an interesting journey of developing understanding in this regard. And I also recognise that there are alternative tellings of this story than the one in which um, I am giving to it, or at least there could be different nuances placed. Um, the one I'm giving can be found within British Methodist tradition, um, but there would be, as with all communities, communities are communities of disagreement. So there'd be um, areas where aspects of this might be pushed and pulled in other ways. But I still think it's a valid piece of appropriation from a way in which that Methodist tradition can be understood. So let's start with section 2, clause 4 of the 1932 Deed of Union of the Methodist Church of Great Britain. Because here it doesn't look like there's going to be much promise of constructive learning. Because here we have clear rejection of the category of priesthood to speak of ordained ministry. And with this, clear rejection also of any notion of there being an essential distinction between ordained and lay. I refer you to the um, quotations under number two on your handout. So it's not looking that promising, is it, at this point? Uh, however, in this context, in the deed of union, um, what we do find is a recognition quote in the, that in the exercise of its corporate life and worship, special qualifications for the discharge of special duties are required. And from that, end of quote, from that, the deed of union proceeds to speak of the need for a principle of, quote, representative selection, end quote. And by this is meant um, something by which the church chooses, the process by which the church chooses those who are specifically called to minister 
um, uh, minister turn on behalf of the church. Actually, chooses is the wrong verb there, whereby the church discerns those who are specifically called to minister turn on behalf of the church. Methodist tradition is clear that um, ordained ministers are not simply kind of appointed delegates, but are the discerned um, representatives, discerned in the mind of Christ, in the, in the body of the church, etc. Now, this language of representation is what I want to focus on. This language of representation to speak of the specificity of the ordained um, without detriment to the relative dignity of the lay. Um, because it received interesting subsequent development in Methodist faith and order statements and reports. For example, in the 1960s statement on ordination in the Methodist church, um, the ordained minister is described as exercising his, the gendering is in the original, his ministry as the representative of the church in a way that, and I refer you to quotes under number three, in a way that brings, quote, together the manifold function of the church's ministry. So uh, a minister as representative of the church bringing together the functions of the church's ministry. Uh, in turn, in the 1974 statement on ordination, uh, we find the ordained referred to as representative persons. And embedded within the quotation, the longer quotation, which is number four, embedded within that you'll find this part quotation. That in their office, the calling of the whole church, the calling of the whole church is focused and represented. They are the sign of the presence and ministry of Christ in the church and through the church to the world. And I, could all, I would also draw your attention, although I won't read it, to um, quotation section five from the 2002 report, What is a Presbyter? Now, let's explore some of this. For those who are imbued with the characteristically Catholic conviction as to there being an essential distinction between ordained and lay. As also for those Methodists who strongly react, and there are such Methodists who strongly react against all such ways of thinking of essential distinction between ordained and lay. The language for, for each of those categories, the language of representative ministry, might be interpreted, might be heard as a consistent rejection of there being any ontological dimension to, to ordained ministry, and might be heard as, as espousing instead a purely functional understanding of it, as one specific task amongst others. In other words, it might sound like it's a levelling exercise, a <coughs> ploy for flattening out any distinction and effectively reducing ordained ministry to the common service of all, <coughs> distinguished only by its training and professional character. I want to suggest, uh, however, indeed argue, that um, an alternative and much stronger reading is both possible and formally encouraged in British Methodist tradition from the 1974, at least anyways, from the 1974 statement on, 1970, on, sorry, on ordination uh, and onwards. And in this regard, it's notable that the 2002 report that I earlier referred to, What is a Presbyter, helpfully identifies both uh, a negative intent and a positive intent in the dual rejection of the language of priesthood and essential distinction in the deed of union. So this is a kind of hermeneutic of retrieval and rereading. And in this um, 
2002 report, it identifies the negative intent in the Deed of Unions statement. Um, and indeed, this negative intent it sees as being of abiding importance within Methodist tradition. But it, it sees this negative intent as, quote, to prevent particular types of understanding of priesthood or a priestly caste, particular types of understanding of priesthood or a priestly caste being applied to um, Methodist ministers. Well, you know, I could go with that. I'm concerned that particular types of understanding of priestly caste not be applied within Catholic tradition either, and I don't think, and I don't think are authentic to Catholic tradition. But then balancing this negative intent is a, it identifies a frequently underappreciated positive intent, which is to maintain, quote, that being a minister or a presbyter and acting as such is a particular form or expression of a vocation or calling to discipleship. I think that's absolutely brilliant phrase, a particular form or expression of a vocation or calling to discipleship. It goes on, a particular form or vocation, a particular form or expression that is uh, of a vocation of calling that in itself, the vocation of calling, is shared by all those who constitute the church. Now what I want to suggest is that this opens a way to a different understanding of the rejection of the language of essential distinction within British Methodism. and opens a way to introduce um, the language of representative ministry, um, a way that is commensurate with the intentions behind the recent espousal of relational ontology within Catholic theology, whilst also being capable of shifting the focus away from active pastoral ministry as the distinguishing factor and onto a more comprehensive understanding of the ordained as being called in whatever situation they might find themselves, to forms of public representative witness to the presence and ministry of Christ in the church and the graced configuring of the life of discipleship to this. Now, I think it's worth quoting at length a passage from section three of uh, what is a presbyter, which is under number six on your sheet. It is this concept Quote, it's this concept that the 1974 statement on ordination seeks to develop in terms of representative persons, as it attempts to state an understanding of presbyteral ministry, which would apply as much to those serving in sector appointment as it does to those appointed to circuits. Um, I, I'm, I'm understanding that as meaning, do correct me, Liz and uh, Pete and uh, Teresa and others, uh, sector, ministry, sector appointment is something that is not conventional pastoral um, parochial uh, appointments as such. Um, so, um, uh, so an understanding of presbyteral ministry would apply as much to those serving in sector appointments as it does to those appointed servants. It begins explicitly with the church's calling to exercise discipleship in worship and mission. This is something to do with public authenticated discipleship and the ministry of Christ in the church rather than um, a distinct ministry. You might say a distinct mode of the one ministry rather than a different ministry. The point is, I think, that the origins and continuing genius of Methodism lie in its being a movement of total lay discipleship. As such, it is necessarily opposed to any suggestion of a two-tier Christianity, with only the upper clerical tier being called to holiness and perfection. And howsoever it's understood within Methodism, 
ordained ministry cannot be conceived as suggesting any diminishment of common Christian dignity and calling. However, and this is the crux of my argument, far from this necessarily representing a low reductive theology of the ordained, it's much better understood as situating ordained ministry within a properly high theology of common Christian life and dignity. One which maintains that the laity share every bit in the dignity rightly attributed to and formally publicly manifest in the ordained, rather than one that, set, rather than one that limits the dignity of the ordained to a reduced understanding of the laity. In every possible sense, I would say, this is a high priestly theology of discipleship. And I think this is highly significant, both for a correct understanding of represent representative ministry within Methodism, and relative to the potential it affords for receptive ecumenical Catholic learning. For in this perspective, the ordained are representative, not simply because they perform certain functions on behalf of the church, whether it's pastoral leadership or anything else, but because, as core to their own Christian vocation, they are called out in the circumstances of their lives to manifest and embody in a public, authenticated, and hence distinct way that which is the deep common identity and dignity of the entire people of God. It's a matter of who they are, and not simply what they do. And by making this dignity manifest, the ordained enable it to be lived more deeply. We can adapt Catholic terminology here, can't we? Ordained Methodist ministers could well be described as sacramental persons and not simply as functionaries of the sacraments. So, final section. The landing gear is being lowered. Potential receptive learning from representative ministry, the one ministry of Christ, in essentially different modes of performance. With this excursion into Methodist tradition in view, let us return explicitly now to the question as to how appropriately and effectively to conceive the distinction in relation between ordained and lay within Catholic tradition, in a way that does proper justice to the respective dignity of ordained and lay, whilst both avoiding all elevation of the ordained over the lay, and at the same time providing sound theological grounds for structures and processes of mutual accountability. In this regard, it is notable that mature Methodist understanding of representative ministry, in, in turn transposed here into the more Catholic-leaning category of ordained sacramentality, itself allows for an alternative way of reconfiguring the relationship between lay and ordained, and of, all, and of resituating the ordained properly within the spirit-indwelt body of the church, but in such a manner as both preserves the proper ontological depth of the ordained, and extends it to the entirety of their lives, and not simply their pastoral leadership roles. The suggestion here, then, for potential receptive Catholic learning in transposition is that the distinctiveness of the ordained lies not in a fundamentally different ministry or a higher level of Christian dignity and discipleship, 
but in their being called to a fundamentally different mode of exercise, public, authenticated, and representative, sacramental. A fundamentally different mode of exercise of the one spirit-led ministry of Christ in the entire body of the church and the common dignity of all the baptised. And this not simply when they perform specific pastoral functions, but in the entirety of their living. In turn, in terms of how this fruitful insight, or at least I think it's a fruitful insight, uh, uh, which I think safeguards or that must be preserved and protects against and heals, potentially heals deleterious distortions. In terms of how this fruitful insight might be successfully accommodated within Catholicism, some testing, what I earlier referred to as internal coherence, is appropriate in relation to the traditional contrast between the ordained as representatio Christi and as representatio ecclesia. Now, in drawing this apparent contrast, I, I, I need to do some further work on this, so if I'm, if I'm giving hostages to fortune, so be it, but you know, uh, that makes life enjoyable. Um, in drawing this apparent contrast, the core concern in the tradition, as I read it, has been to maintain the ordained ministry is divinely established and called forth, that it is of Christ, and not simply a matter of delegated representation on behalf of a human institution. I think that's an entirely correct um, uh, concern what's maintained, as I indicated earlier. Supporting this point, however, has been the assumption, and this was an, ass this was an assumption, of course, prior the advent of historical critical scholarship. Supporting this point has been the assumption that a contrast is to be drawn between Christ's direct granting of the powers and character of ordained ministry in hierarchical dispensation on the one hand, and the more general charismatic endowment of the church as a whole by the spirit on the other hand. And this is remarkably telescoped um, but I have an argument for it that developed elsewhere. What I want to say is that this is an assumption which is neither credible, which is no longer credible relative to the findings of historical critical scholarship, but nor is it an assumption that is required relative to a fully theological understanding of the church as the spirit-filled, charism-endowed, ecclesial body of Christ not some hum mere human institution. As such, there is simply no need to set up an artificial contrast between Christ's granting of hierarchical order to the church on the one hand, and the church in the power of the spirit on the other hand, having discerned the appropriately variegated ordering of the charism endowed ministry of the church. As formal Catholic theology itself has been recognising for some time, Christ's real instituting of the church is an instituting of the church by the risen Christ in the spirit. As the catechism, as the catechism states, Christ is himself the source of ministry in the church. He instituted the church, but it's saying that in the context of the risen Christ in the spirit. So, moving on and making sort of perhaps too many moves too quickly. But as David Power, um, in specific relation 
to the in persona Christi, in persona Ecclesia, in turn states, and this is on your sheet as the final quote. Um, the minister does not act in the person of Christ and the person of the church in two distinct ways or by two distinct sets of actions and words. The one act of presiding, proclaiming and praying is an action of the totus Christus, of Christ present and active and acting within his body, the church. So that's trying to indicate the way in which I would deal with that bit of internal coherence testing. Moving on to another aspect and indicating it briefly. And here the question is, how does this proposed development in Catholic theology of ordained ministry vis-a-vis um, uh, -vis the vocation and ministry of the laity, how does it cohere with the clause that we started out with in Lou and Gentium 10 about there being a difference of essence and not simply degree between the priesthood of the faithful and the ordained priesthood? Well, the proposal here is that this be best understood prospectively best understood as a kind of positive hermeneutic into the future rather than making any specific claims about the precise intentions of the original drafters which ultimately kind of is important to some degree but not of ultimate importance how the church receives the parameters of thinking that's going on there um, the proposal here is that this be best understood not in terms of an in now this is powerful stuff not in terms of an essentially different kind of priesthood, nor in terms of it being a higher quality version of the same priesthood, but rather that it be understood in terms of it being an essentially different mode of exercise. So we can use the language of essential difference, but the essential difference is not about kinds, sorry, it's not about um, different types of priesthood, but different modes of exercise of the one priesthood. Different mode of exercise in that it's public, official, representative, sacramental. Different mode of exercise of the one priest of Christ in which all the baptized share. A different mode of representative sacramental, uh, sorry, a different mode of representative sacramental ministry moreover, which shapes the entire being of the ordained before God and the church. So we're dealing here, I suggest, not with a dual notion of the priest of Christ, the high priest and the ordained, and the common priest of the holy faith, faithful, on the other hand, but with the integrated notion of the one priestly ministry of Christ performed in the church at once under two distinct modes. And far from this being a theology of order that might inflate the ordained, going back to the kind of pathologies of clericalism, etc. Far from this, I think, being a theology of the ordained of order that might inflate the ordained with prideful superiority and insulate them from criticism and accountability. This is an approach which both holds fast to the core Catholic instincts and convictions concerning ordination, whilst also situating the ordained radically in the body of the church, wherein routine structures and processes of mutual accountability geared towards supporting and assessing the effective living of this sign value would become both right and proper and ordinary. Rather than running the risk of elevating the ordained in disordered fashion, I think it is a theology that would properly push the ordained to their knees, profoundly aware of the weight of responsibility attendant upon their calling and their absolute and continual need 
both for the forgiving, sustaining, transforming grace of God in Christ and the Spirit, and the prayerful support, criticism, partnership and companionship of their sisters and brothers, lay, consecrated and ordained, if they are to be what they are called out to be. So it's saying something about you know, the, the holiness of priesthood is core to it. It's also saying something about um, that order is to be understood closer to the distinctiveness of religious life, consecrated life, than we sometimes given um, credit for it. It's saying something, and following presbyterorum ordinus, it's saying something about witness, is um, witness comes before um, sacramental functioning. Equally, turning to the laity, far from this being a theology and practice of ordained, of ordered ministry that might alienate or disempower the laity, I think it's a theology that would reflect back to us what we all so most deeply are, and so draw us more deeply into the living of it. The informal and official status of lay ministry and vocation, relative to the authenticated public status of the ordained, cannot be taken to imply that the former is less virtuous, less imaginative, less effective, even less exemplary, far from it. It simply implies that as informal and unofficial, it is free of either the validation or the constraints of official sanction. And in that lies both its limits and indeed its potential. Thank you.